Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey folks, this is Tom Castles from Broken Healthcare. That's the podcast that strives to examine, diagnose, and propose a treatment plan for our ailing healthcare system. Now, in this podcast, we cover just about everything that causes people pain and suffering, and we do it through these really deep character dives and immersive stories. So when you've finished this episode of Hit Like a Girl, come check us out at Broken Healthcare. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Anne Barnes, the CEO of Intelligent Medical Objects, or IMO Health. She caught our eye when she brought an all-female executive team to the J.P. Morgan Chase Conference, and we learned a lot from our conversation, and think you will too. So let's get started. So my background and my journey has been a little bit varied. Spent the first very long piece of my career history in sort of sales, um, running enterprise sales and marketing organizations across multiple different industries and found my way ultimately into a COO president role in a healthcare services company about 15 years ago and ended up becoming the CEO there and running that company through a successful exit to a strategic buyer and then beyond that for several years into sort of expanding our services space from a typical RCM company out into sort of the world of patient engagement, patient pay and eligibility. So lots of good lessons along the way, scaling that company from about 15 to 20 million to about 250 million and certainly scaling employee bases from, I think when I started about 80 people to about 2,700 when I left. But I put up my head a couple of years ago and said what I would really like to do is put the puzzle pieces together again. So much like you described healthcare as a big complex puzzle with lots of different opportunities, I wanted to find a company that was that had a really strong piece of that puzzle and that we could expand into other puzzle pieces around it. And so my journey brought me to IMO a couple of years ago. IMO stands for Intelligent Medical Objects, and we actually are in the medical terminology and insight space. So that is our puzzle piece of healthcare. And specifically, we build all of the medical terminology 
that doctors use to describe both problems and procedures inside of the medical record. So we partner closely with all of the major and most of the minor EHRs, and we build all of the terminology that sits inside of that that allows the doctor to speak doctor. So they're allowed to document however they they see fit. So we have 2.7 million clinician-friendly terms that sit inside of these EHRs. The doctors don't have to worry about how that information is going to be used. They just document to to varying degrees of specificity that whatever fits the current situation. And then we actually map to 24 code sets worldwide. So those code sets could be for quality purposes, for just reporting purposes, or for billing purposes. It doesn't matter because we're actually just allowing the physician to document what is going on with the patient. We also retain that specificity. And so we've also entered our additional puzzle piece we entered into last year was the insight space around problems and procedures. So that's a pretty an interesting lift for the company because who knows the information better than those that helped create it. And so we're able to help people reach into sort of what is that big vat of data, the EHR, and pull out the very specific information they need to actually solve for something, managing a group of patients, looking at a group of outcomes, looking at information about a specific patient. We can help them pull that very specific information out at a later date, which is often hard in healthcare because we all know that we can sometimes look at coded data that's been oversimplified for billing purposes or quality purposes or claims data also oversimplified. And so we help doctors and hospitals, others in the ecosystem get back to that level of specificity when they need it. So I actually have a couple of questions regarding that. One has to do with quality measures. So I get to see oftentimes, you know, the verbiage that's included in like a G code that would be, you know, whether or not a clinical action was taken or, or something. But a lot of times that the language that is included in those codes doesn't necessarily, it's not really something that the doctor or clinician would normally say. So we found ourselves like customizing the verbiage in a note so that it matches what they're kind of what's going on in their head. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Would it be more kind of laypersons or specific to the clinician or to make it a little bit more medical terminology heavy? So it's a little bit of both. So what we're allowing the clinician to do is as they're documenting, we're allowing them to speak clinician. So over time, because we we have over 85% of the, the U.S. market in healthcare, we have a lot of physician input. So today we have 2.7 million clinician-friendly terms, but as we see new clinicians or other clinicians request new terms, and we see themes there, we continue to add terms all the time. And so doctors are able to go in and write it exactly the way they want to and not have to worry, am I writing this the way I need to for ICD-10? Am I writing this the way I need to for SNOMED? Am I writing this the way I need to for quality? That They don't need to be concerned about that. We're trying to get them back to being with a patient and focusing on the patient. We do the mapping and translation to all of the global code sets that allow for those different use cases, right? Whether it's quality or reporting or, or billing. So we're actually letting them do that. Let me give you a, a really recent example of that. COVID-19 is a time right now where um, it's tough for the whole country and certainly tough on our physicians. And starting back in January, we recognized in working with the CDC and others that 
there was not the appropriate terminology inside of our healthcare systems in America to differentiate the coronavirus from the standard flu. Everything looked very, very similar, and there wasn't a way for the doctors to speak doctor. And so in January, we released our first set of terminology very quickly, got that out and got that released to the industry so that people could start recording the appropriate things they needed to with this virus. And then as of earlier this week, we actually released over a hundred more terms because there's been so much more learned and we've been working side by side with the CDC. And so we released over a hundred more terms on Monday that, or sorry, last week, sorry, that allows the, the industry to actually get much, much more specific. And then we released for free to the industry what we call our IMO precision sets. And it's a precision set library around the coronavirus that allows our hospitals to actually go in and pull out cohorts so they can focus on the group of patients that are symptomatic. They can focus on the group of patients that are tested positive. They can focus on a group of patients that are symptomatic and have underlying a specific underlying condition. So it really does help them with the workflow and the management and the reporting and the focusing on outcomes um, and even tracking for for government entities or for regulatory entities. You brought something up and you, I think you just gave one example and about how information goes into the EHR in so many cases, the clinician's dictating, they're writing, they're typing, they're doing something. And that information is basically, it's transactional. It's sucked into a black box, basically sitting somewhere on a server You just gave an example where based on maybe creating certain custom cohorts or almost exploring certain attributes of a population as possible. Do you have any other success stories where people are using this information to bring it back and do something unique with it? Good question. So we are really focused on that insight space for just the reason that you just said. There's lots of good data going in and not a lot of easy ways to pull the data out the way you want it in the specific focused areas you want it when you need it. And so that's one of the biggest challenges that our customers tell us that they have. And so we've worked side by side with our EHR partners to develop a series of libraries, some around acute conditions, some around chronic conditions, some around um, cancer survivorship groups that they're focused on. And so we're able to help both a hospital track that. And in most cases, we find that ours are 20% more accurate We find 20% more patients in that cohort than others do. But more importantly, it's very cumbersome for a hospital today to not just create those because it takes clinicians to create it, but then to maintain those and keep them updated. In most cases, they don't get updated. So when new terminology, new diagnoses get added or something else changes about that group, it's very, very cumbersome and most of the time does not effectively get updated. And so we do all of the ongoing updating and maintaining for all of our customers. And we're finding our customers are using these to much greater success. And we're also finding that other consumers of the data in the ecosystem, as an example, care management companies or patient education companies who really don't want to have a generic care plan or a generic set of content delivered to a patient, but want to get much more specific. Our tools are helping them to deliver much more specific care plans, much more specific patient content to the patient as they need it. And so we're not just helping in the hospitals, but we're helping everybody who has to consume that data do very, very specific things. And we're seeing 
really good success across the country with that. Interestingly enough, at this you know very traumatic time in America and around the world, COVID-19 actually jumped in, jumped onto the scene at a time where we had developed tools that could really help. And our EHR partners have been fantastic at partnering with us to make sure that we can get these integrated into the platforms and out to our customers. That's really incredible. This is like such a unprecedented time, really, to say the least. And aren't you guys based in the Bay Area? No, we're actually based in Chicago. I actually live in California and travel out there. And actually, um, both companies I have run over the last 15 years in healthcare, have both been in the Midwest. And part of of sort of my life balance has been, um, I have a husband and, and three sons, and we made a decision um, long ago that my traveling to business opportunities that made sense for the family and for me made a lot more sense for me to commute than for us to continue to move the family. So they're able to be established out here in Northern California and I've been able to have a good run with a company in Cleveland and now we're based out of Chicago and I'm doing this run. I say it's one flight shorter, but it it just helps. It's whatever works for your life balance. But for me, this has made the whole world sort of be an opportunity for me when opportunities arise and not have to think about the impact of moving the family. That's great to hear. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. You came on to our radar around the time of the J.P. Morgan Chase conference, and it was because you had written an article about having your girl gang and you know folks that you were bringing to that conference. Can you speak a little bit about your kind of thought process about women in the workplace and what it is you're doing to sort of ensure that there's more gender equity all around? This is my personal passion: is really focusing on um, helping women evolve in their careers and helping women understand that they're not just one seat at the table and promoting strong, powerful, diverse teams of people. And so that was a focus with me certainly when I was at Mad Data and a very large focus here at IMO. And I'm really proud of the team that I've built. Not only is it a good, diverse team, but we've flipped the script on a couple of things. So I very much focused on bringing in a female CFO I really wanted that opportunity to have that. I really wanted a chief people officer that was a male and kind of flip that script for the organization, which has been really nice. But I have surrounded myself with with an incredible team that we've built over the last couple of years and happen to have some incredibly strong female leaders 
that I've either promoted or been able to bring in to the team. And so as we prepared for JP Morgan, it was a focus of mine to make sure that we brought a strong female team. I've been at going to JP Morgan for the last 15 years and it's really interesting to look around and it's still a sea of males. And I don't think that's representative of healthcare in general. And I don't think it's representative of the patient population that healthcare is serving. And so as I looked around, my COO is a very strong, bright leader. My chief growth officer is a strong, bright leader. My CFO, strong, bright leader. And they all happen to be females. And so we decided to intentionally take an all-female team out to JP Morgan. And the response was really interesting. I mean, certainly it was well-received, but in almost every meeting, comments were made of, wow, four women as we walked in the door. And we sort of chuckled and said, you would never say that if four men walked into this meeting, right? But it's not just four women, it's four competent, bright, intelligent, well-spoken leaders that can talk to you about what's going on in healthcare. And so we were really proud of that. We were proud of the splash it made. We were proud of the impact it had on people. And so my focus organizationally is always let's pay that forward. I had really good mentors um, when I was very young that invested in me um, and have continued being mentored by many brilliant women over my career. And so my goal is to give back and continue to do that and impact that as much as possible. And we're very focused on that at all levels inside of IMO, not just at the executive leadership team, but at the management leadership level, at the supervisory level. And so we're focused on everybody who's a people manager, making sure we have the right women at the table there and making sure we're both mentoring and developing those people to make an impact. We can't impact all of healthcare IT, but we feel like we can impact our segment and share the story as much as possible. And maybe our little piece of the puzzle starts to stretch out and impact other parts of of healthcare IT. Well, we really respect that. And we certainly were very excited to see that there was that deliberate choice made by yourself and by the organization. It was really exciting. It makes me a little sad and a little surprised that that was the response you all received walking into the room. What do you think other organizations could be doing better or what would be a good first step for them to follow in your lead? I think a couple of things. I think as you're going out and recruiting, actually setting strong, focused recruiting efforts to get at different pieces of diversity. It could be females, it could be race, it could be different lifestyles, but making sure you understand what you're looking for as part of your recruiting. I mean, I, as I worked with an outside recruiting company and we started the CFO search, I said, I will look at all candidates, but I want strong representation from females. And they kind of groaned. They're like, oh, it's really hard. And I go, well, it might be harder. It might take longer, but that's what we're going to do. And ultimately it was a bit of a longer search, but I found an amazing female to fill that role and I was really focused on it. And so I think organizations need to be intentional. I think if you're not intentional, it's much harder to do that. And then I think talking about it helps, right? That's why we wanted to do the blog. It's why we wanted to get it out there. I think it's okay to be intentional. I think it is sad that we're still walking in rooms getting those comments, but the more we talk about it, the less it is this thing that gets shoved under the carpet. And so we talk about it as a company a lot. We need to be focused on that and we need to create environments 
where women can also thrive and they feel like they have a voice in the room. So part of it is recruiting. Part of it is making sure that you're developing and mentoring the females within the organization. Part of it is recruiting at the very front line. So we focus a lot on software engineering, both at the frontline level and at the supervisory level of, of really intentionally searching to bring in more females. And then some of it is about counseling because I do think that sometimes women were our own worst enemy and we tend to not support each other's in the, each other in the way we could within the company because it's a little bit of that mentality of, hey, there's only one or two seats at the table, so I need to climb over the top of you. So we spend a lot of time internally talking about that and a lot of time internally talking about how critical it is to continue to pay this forward, to continue to mentor people and continue to teach the organization and the people in it that there is a seat at the table for all smart, intelligent, competent, performing people, regardless of of who you are. And so we are very intentional about it. And I think a lot of companies talk about it and you can talk about it and hope it gets better, but that's very different than focusing and making it better. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, that's really incredible. And on the flip side, do you have any advice for anybody who might be on the mentee side of things? So somebody who is perhaps looking for a mentor or looking to join an organization and maybe not be so intimidated by the statistics? Is there any piece of advice for there? First of all, I think as mentees, and I still am a mentee, I have four different um, female mentors. And I think it's important to always reach out. I think sometimes you have to ask the question, will you help me? Will you teach me? Can I learn from some of your experiences? And so I think it's important to do that within the company you work in, but also not just within the company you work in, but to reach out across healthcare and find people you can connect with. I'm currently mentoring somebody that I don't even know. They found me through a person through a person and actually reached out to me and said, my dream is to be a CEO. I have no idea how to someday get there from the position I am today. Would you be open to talking with me? And so I did. I jumped in. I was like, I'd be thrilled to share what I think would help you. I'd be thrilled to learn more about you. I'd be thrilled to help. And so I think just understanding that I think there are more people out there willing to help and you just have to reach out and ask the questions. And then you have to get specific about where you feel stuck. It's one thing just to get together and mentor somebody and it's another to know that you're really trying to help them overcome these specific barriers. One of the people that I'm mentoring today She's so bright and talented and sometimes I think the smartest person in the room, but doesn't doesn't use her voice in a way that demonstrates that she's confident. And so the organization isn't getting the full value from that individual because they just aren't speaking up all of the time. And so some of that is sort of a mental roadblock and helping that person get through um, that mental roadblock so they can start doing it and get much more comfortable. So I think as a mentee, you've got to, you've got to reach out, you've got to ask for help and then asking for specific help can be much more rewarding than just generically, hey, will you mentor me? And I think making those sessions productive is is really helpful. That's been really powerful for me. I think I got my first mentor when I was 24 years old. And that's been a really, really big part of my career path is always making sure that I have mentors and that I'm refreshing mentors um, and getting new ones and also reaching out and mentoring other people. And before we move on, you said you had your first mentor when you were probably about 24. Can you share with us maybe 
a lesson learned about how someone that was instrumental maybe earlier on in your career was able to help you either, you know, self-realize or be introspective about something or be deliberate about making a change to to really advance you or take you to a different place? Because I think a lot of people see where you are now and think to themselves, oh, I would love to have her job. I would love to be in this role. What is one of your earliest lessons learned with someone in that type of mentee situation? Yeah, so I was super fortunate because one of my very first jobs a very long time ago, right out of college was with Xerox. And I entered into Xerox at a time where there was an enormous focus around women. So women's conferences, women's mentoring. And, and I was, it was an East Coast company, but I was out here on the West Coast, not knowing much about it. And um, I remember the first time somebody reached out to me and said, we want to have you formally enter our mentoring program. And I was like, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. And I was fortunate enough that they gave us some little workshops on how does this going to work and what does a mentoring session look like and, and what should the mentor do? But I remember maybe my very second year of mentoring, one of the, the two most important lessons I took away were this. One is always think two jobs out. So you can't just think about the next job you want because if you aren't thinking of a career path and two jobs out, next job, as interesting as it may sound, might not be the right job to help you achieve your ultimate goal. And so I always think at least two jobs out. And that was really helpful because I wasn't doing that. And the second was don't be afraid to move horizontally. And I truly believe that that is the reason that I'm in the role I'm in today. I wasn't afraid to pick up operational responsibility along the way. I was primarily a sales and marketing leader. I wasn't afraid to jump over and take a COO role and really learn deeply about operations. At one point, I did a two-year stint in HR as part of my development, which was definitely not on my original roadmap. But all of those experiences all way into my, um, A, I think being able to be a CEO today and being able to be successful in the role because I didn't just move up in one function. I would have not come up with any of that on my own if it hadn't been for strong female leaders sort of paving the way for me and helping me think differently about my career path. That's great advice. Now you've got me, my wheels turning. Um, I feel like those two pieces of advice I give to people all the time. Those are probably the, my two most repeated pieces of advice in my mentoring sessions too. I think they're rock solid. I would keep those up. Transitioning to our second question, we really like to think about, well, kind of the, the future and what the future could hold, but possibly without all of the obstacles. Like if we could, if you could, could have any wish basically and kind of snap your fingers and not have uh, money be an issue, tools, time, resources be an issue. If you could solve any problem without the hurdles that are perhaps that go along with them, what would you choose to solve in healthcare or health IT and why? I think for healthcare in general, We've got to catch healthcare up with other industries in the rest of the world, right? I actually think in some strange ways, for example, telehealth will, will become a much more dominant play post this global pandemic than it was before. And that will help speed us up in some ways because we've got to be able to meet the current generation of patients the way they want to be met. I also would focus on 
helping us look at the whole patient. I think there are other countries that do a better job of looking at the whole patient, not just the current diagnosis, not just the current problem, but everything about that patient, whether it's the genomics, the social determinants of health, whether it's their current nutrition, their current lifestyle, but really rather than looking at symptom by symptom, look at the whole patient and try to really focus on outcomes versus outcomes over time versus just solving this current urgent situation. I think that that is where things are going. I wish we could speed that up. I wish we could get much, much quicker at at getting to outcome-based healthcare and really the ability to look at the at the whole patient much more quickly. Certainly telehealth is a big piece of that puzzle. I don't think it's realistic that um, the world of healthcare is going to exist just in buildings where people show up and wait for appointments. That's that's not always going to be how healthcare is handled. And so we've got to start thinking about the current generation of young people and the next generation of young people and the way that they see the world and the way that they see technology interacting. So I think there's an enormous opportunity in play for technology. And I think there's enormous, an enormous opportunity to use data better. We are not yet in the U.S. using data the way I think it could be used to help us make better decisions quickly and at the point of care. That's coming. All of those things are coming that I talked about, but they're coming in sort of a slow plotting way versus a very quick way, which other industries move more quickly. We've got to help healthcare move there so that we get clinicians back to being happy about their jobs and more people wanting to be clinicians in the new sort of description of what a clinician is. And we help healthcare move more quickly and, and, um, and we help people be healthier over time. I think that's really important. And I think when we think about people not showing up in the office, my hope is is that the current pandemic crisis is not just a catalyst for telehealth, but other things, especially when we think about the whole patient. And when you think about all of this stuff and what you're doing, what are you reading? What are you keeping your finger on the pulse of? How do you keep up in an industry that changes daily and like the last few weeks, hourly? Yeah, so it's really been a lot, right? And how do you know that you're getting to the right information? I will tell you, I've been really fortunate in some ways because Warburg Pincus is our investor and they've done a really nice job for all their companies getting national pandemic experts and clinicians on the phone with us once a week, which has been amazing. So I jump at all of those opportunities. I said to my team this morning, I feel like I've been on more CEO informational calls in the last two weeks than ever. But I do take those opportunities because even if I can glean one or two things out of those, they really help me. One of my really big focuses that I've talked about for the last three or four years is having people work at the top of their license. One of the things I get really frustrated with in the business world is that we hire these really highly specific, intelligent, amazing people. And then we end up having them do a lot of rote basic work that they shouldn't be doing. And so we're not using them and we're not using their full brain capacity. And I've been talking about that and working on that for for multiple years. I had the benefit earlier, I guess it was late last year, the years are running together, late last year, listening to Liz Weissman speak. And she wrote a book called The Multipliers, which I highly recommend. And we started using that when mentoring our managers. And it really talks about 
diminishing those diminishers out there in the world as leaders, which certainly we've all worked for bad managers and people that don't stretch you, but keep you down. But really the bulk of us are accidental diminishers at time when we have the best intentions, but we're still not developing and growing our people the right way and allowing them to learn, allowing them to stretch and work at what I call the top of their license or to the best of their ability and to fully engage their brains and fully engage their skills versus working hard and being underutilized, right? Which is what we hear a lot. People are working hard, but they're being underutilized and that's a terrible feeling. And so if we want to create work environments where we get the best out of people, then we've got to focus on what are those things we can do to get the best out of people and to get the most out of people. And so after I heard her speak, I read her book and then um, we shared her book across the organization with every level of management. So anybody that managed people, we went through the book and bought that for everybody and then have talked a lot in our mentoring sessions about what are, she puts in the book some very tactical and basic things that you can do once you identify some of your accidental diminishing tendencies. And it's really helpful because you can actually turn it right into action and go try some of those things with your team. And you can talk out loud about what you're trying to accomplish so your team can help you. And so that's probably been the most impactful read I've had in the last year. I've certainly read a lot and I certainly reach out and talk to a lot of people, but those things that you can actually take and apply in the organization, I think are few and far between. And this was one I highly recommend. Well, I'm definitely going to be putting it on my list. And thank you so much for taking the time today. And we really just appreciate everything that you're doing, you know, in your organization and setting an example as a leader for others to follow in your footsteps. So, you know, we're wishing you the best of luck, especially in this crazy, crazy time right now. But again, just thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much. We're definitely focused on making lemonade out of lemons. So I think, um, I think we can all sort of make healthcare a better place coming out of this. And I think we're learning lessons more quickly. So I'm excited to help however I can. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.